It's just ticked over 11 a.m., at least in my time zone, 7 a.m. Pacific's time zone or whatever time it is, wherever you are in the world. Um, just once again, hey, thanks for joining us for our webinars at Ascendo Reliability. We are really enjoyed not only talking to you, but getting your feedback in terms of uh, how you're experiencing some of the concepts that Fred, me and other people talk about. It helps us understand what we need to do to fill in our knowledge gaps as well. So it's a two-way street. So uh, today, this webinar is all about what a root cause is. And before I get into too many details about what a root cause is, I'm actually going to go through uh, an example or a case study. And that case study involves uh, what we call bullet-resistant vests. Uh, if, that, if my computer ever permits me to move to the next slide. So a bullet-resistant vest looks like this. In this case, this is a xylon bullet-resistant vest. Now, xylon is a high tensile uh, fiber. So we have a lot of bullet-resistant vests, which a lot of people perceive or assume to be very hard. And that is often the case where you have a combination of fibers and ceramics. And ceramics are wonderful. They're very, very strong in compression. So they do a great job of deforming an incoming round when that hits that bullet resistant vest, making that round deform and therefore impart force over a bigger area, which reduces the local pressure. The problem with those sorts of vests is they're not very flexible and they're not breathable. They don't allow moisture to get from the inside to the outside, which is a very big deal for soldiers, sales, airmen and police officers. And so we have these uh, types of vests as well, these very flexible vests, uh, which are made exclusively uh, uh, from tensile, high tensile strength fibers. The problem, uh, problem with that is uh, these fibers, because they're all flexible, aren't particularly good at deflecting or deforming those incoming rounds. They need to be extraordinarily strong. And in this case, this bullet resistant vest uh, was made from xylon fiber, very, very strong, which is related, and it's related to Kevlar in a way. And the xylon bullet resistant vests are manufactured by this company called Second Chance Body Armor. Uh, and this, the, the fibers themselves are manufactured by a Japanese company. And the idea is that these bullet resistant vests would then help all sorts of people uh, in a risky, in, in risky forms of employment get through their, through their day, for lack of a better term. But unfortunately, in 2003, uh, one of these Zolan vests had a round go through it. Unfortunately, in that case, the police officer was, he was injured, but he was not killed. Fortunately, very soon after this incident, another police officer was shot. The, the round did penetrate the vest and he was killed. And anyway, uh, the ensuing investigation, they determined that in that vest that was penetrated, uh, Zolan fibers were 30% weaker than they should have been. And when they tested other xylon vests that had been used across law, law enforcement agencies across North America, they found that 58% of these xylon vests uh, were penetrated by rounds they were supposed to defeat. 38% had excessive back face deformation, which means that the rounds weren't penetrating, but they were made, uh, essentially uh, deforming the vest too far into the body of the police officer, which is also very dangerous. And unfortunately, that only meant that 4% were 
of these vests were okay. So something was going on. And so we need to look a bit deep in greater detail on what uh, is going on when these bullet resistant vests function well. And so here we have a cross section of a bullet resistant vest with the fiber weave made up of these very strong fibers. We have the incoming round over here. And when that round hits our vest, the first thing it does is deform. We call that mushrooming. And of course, if you've got a ceramic vest, which is rigid and hard, mushrooming is much more pronounced. So there is some mushrooming when it, when it hits a flexible bullet resistant vest but uh, there's not as much, it's not quite nearly, not, as, not, a, not a lot when compared to those really hard um, uh, bullet resistant vests. And when, what happens is that when that round hits that bullet resistant vest, it creates what we call a shear plug. It essentially just starts punching a hole through the fiber weave. And that's okay, that's what the fiber weave is supposed to do because every time uh, we have another layer of fibers that uh, essentially fracture, that absorbs energy. And not all of these fibers need to, uh, need to uh, are able or should be able to be form, form part of the shear plug because at the back, we wanna make sure that there's enough fibers which don't form part of the shear plugs, they deform and they too uh, absorb energy through delamination. And this whole process creates this, what we call conoid shock wave, which goes through the vest and reflex and otherwise dissipates energy across the entire uh, fiber weave. The end state is that we would expect to see a, a shear plug with a broken or fractured fibers at the back, all of which is absorbing energy and therefore preventing the round from penetrating. And so we obviously want really strong fibers. The stronger the fiber, the better. And fibers typically don't come much stronger than what we call these PBO fibers, which is uh, polypephalene, Benzobisoxazole uh, fibers. We're going to call them PBO fibers for short, or better yet, we'll call them xylon because that's their uh, uh, trademark name. And so these fibers uh, are, actually, are very small and they're made up of actually lots of little fibrils. And so we have what is quite a complex or complicated structure, lots of little microfibrils and we have a surface sheet and somehow we're able to, to make these fibers on a very small scale. Problem is that uh, when we expose these fibers to water, something really bad happens. And because these are polymers, we want our molecules, these really long molecules to stay essentially connected through these covalent bonds. But when water comes along, that really ruins our day. So this is a really zoomed in uh, version of the PBO fiber that makes up xylon bullet resistant vests. So whenever oxygen, so not oxygen, water comes along, these H2O molecules, this oxazole link, which has got three carbon atoms and one nitrogen and one oxygen atom, it essentially goes through two steps. The first step is it un unlinks on one side. The second link step is it unlinks on the other, other side. And each of those unlinkings needs, needs a water molecule. So we want to make sure that water doesn't get anywhere near our xylon fibers. And when they're manufactured, they're supposed to have water resistant coating. Anyway, so when they're investigating these uh, xylon fibers, uh, these bullet resistant vests, which were failing due to these xylon fibers uh, somehow being weaker than they should have, uh, the National Institute of Justice did some testing. They got some xylon fiber and they put the xylon fiber in, a, in, in an environmental chamber at about 55 degrees Celsius, which is a relatively high temperature 
with 0% relative humidity. And over time, you can see this testing went on for almost a year. And you can see that there was a relatively small reduction, if or any, in terms of the tensile strength of our zoon fibers. But that was not the case when they added humidity. And you can see how quickly the residual tensile strength of zoon fibers degraded over time when there was, in this case, around uh, between 37% and 60% relative humidity. And when they took that humid, most of that humidity out of the environment, so it went down to 5% relative humidity, um, while there was still a decrease in tensile strength, it seemed to slow down a lot. So there was clearly a problem with our zoonotic fibers. And obviously, when you're a police officer, or a, a soldier, sailor, or airman wearing a flexible vest, you're sweating. And so you're creating water every step, every single second. And that's water will, in this case, degrade zoon fibers. Thing is, Second Chance didn't test for this well-known hydrolysis phenomenon. In fact, it's one of the better case studies in terms of how whistleblowers uh, are treated in uh, Western legislative frameworks because uh, there was a couple of internal bells rung within a second chance body armor. Uh, though its options included addressing the problem head on or trying to bury it. And of course, they tried to bury it and they uh, ignored their own test results and eventually declared bankruptcy when they were forced to recall Zolon-based vests. Now, Toyoba themselves, the people, the organization which manufactured these Zolon fibers, they didn't cover themselves in glory either. In fact, it was a 13-year uh, pitched legal battle they fought with the US government. In the end, they had to pay a $66 million fine. Now, of course, we are, there's only one known death from this, these vests, but the chances are there's at least some more injuries at the very least. And it all comes down to root causes. How do we make things reliable? If we know this is how our, uh, our zone fibers are going to react, if we know what the root causes of that uh, failure, failure are, that gives us a fighting chance of being able to design those failures out of our system, or at least very least control. And so we use this term root cause a lot in reliability engineering. And that means anything to all, men, all numbers of people. So while I, well, this is, well, this statement is true. If we understand the root causes of failure, um, we will then uh, be able to do things which would probably prevent this Xylon bullet resistant vest fiasco from ever happening. But I'll just open it up to you guys. If anyone's brave enough to share in the chat window what they think the root cause of failure is, I'd love to hear your perspective because that concept is what we're going to be, going to be talking about for the next hour or so. So let's see if anyone has their own idea. Well, I know you do have your own idea. Let's see if anyone's brave enough to share their idea of root cause with the rest of our, our, our attendees. Okay, so I got a very specific response. Moisture was not part of the original functional specification. So that's a root cause all our bullet resistant vests and I can completely, uh, I can acknowledge that is a potential, very valid potential root cause. Moisture is not part of the original functional specification. I like that for a couple of reasons we'll come back to. I suppose my question though, and this is my bad, what is a root cause in general? If you were to open up 
the textbook that is your mind or someone ha- you are trying to explain to someone what the root cause of failure is conceptually or philosophically, what would a root cause mean to you? Anyone want to share what they think a textbook might say a root cause is or what you think a root cause is? Hmm, maybe, maybe we are, that's, maybe that's why we're all here to talk about root causes. Maybe we're here to learn what a root cause is, at least from my perspective and the way that I think will help. I like uh, Brian's uh, proposal for a, a root cause because he talks about something a human being did or didn't do. So hold that thought for a minute. Let's have a look at an example where we are trying to understand the root cause of potential failures for this smart lock. And yes, smart locks are wonderful devices. They're entering the market in greater frequencies uh, every single day. And obviously smart locks are made up of lots of different parts and components. And we can sometimes get wowed with smart technology to the extent that we might overlook some of the more simpler reasons for failure. I need to go back because I see Mark has come back with an idea of what a root root cause is, which is any cause which, if controlled, has a potential to mitigate the risk of an issue occurring. I like that one too. So we'll come back to these uh, these definitions when we talk about what a root cause means in a way which I think is very, very helpful. So if we go to our smart lock, and let's say Mark is trying, amongst others, is trying to control uh, whatever it is that's going to result in failure. We're early development stages here. So we're trying to get ahead of the curve. We're trying to understand root causes of things that are likely to occur, but haven't, haven't read the ugly heads yet. What can we do? Well, like I said, we can't get too enamored with all the smart technology because at the end of the day, perhaps the most important components of our smart locks from some perspectives are these ones here the electric motor which drives that bolt in and out of the door jam. So we often forget about some of the really simple things when we design something new and amazing, such as cables or wires that join uh, circuit boards and electrical components. So think about your smart lock, which is supposed to operate in lovely, uh, lovely homes. There's no angry children or teenagers going through stages. And essentially the door doesn't get slammed a lot, but we know that is rarely the case. We all often come across users who for whatever reason slam that door, do things to our system we don't always naturally anticipate. And if we have a door which is slammed shut a lot, just think about what it could do to these solder joints for these loose wires. And then what we wanna do as reliability engineers is get to the root causes of the or potential root causes of these uh, of this fire, because when we do that, we can come up with these wonderful wonderful things called corrective actions. So, for example, corrective action number one was to use thicker gauge wire to make sure there was better uh, adhesive or better adhesion, I should say, provided by the solder joint at the motor. Corrective action number two was to have shorter wires to limit the free uh, swinging mass. 
And correction action number three was to physically restrain the wires. So the momentum associated with slamming that, uh, uh, that uh, door was transferred through shock loading to the case of our smart lock and not to the solder joints. Corrective action number four was to take solder out of it uh, entirely the circuit board end and we use a socket and plug uh, assembly, which also makes it that much easier to us to, uh, to assemble. Corrective action number five is visual inspections of incoming motors from our suppliers. We're going to perhaps look at a small number of our incoming uh, motors and make sure that solder soldering was done to a high enough standard for that's a surveillance testing. Maybe we even go one step further and for a even smaller fraction, we might look at 10% of incoming motors and conduct uh, automated micro, micro, microscopic optical inspection. So these are wonderful corrective actions and the design corrective actions essentially cost nothing if you pick them up early. If you're able to incorporate thicker gauge wires and these case clips as part of your first design, I know there's an inherent cost in having slightly more material, but in practice, you and I both know these really simple design ideas are almost negligibly expensive if we think about them from the very start. And that is how we make reliability happen. Make reliability happen by thinking ahead, thinking ahead, trying to prevent all these failures from occurring because we are smart enough, because we're smart enough to design something that can work, we should be smart enough to, to, to work out how it might fail. And when we make when we bake reliability into our system, it means that these wonderfully simple, trivial design uh, design characteristics, which become part of our first design, uh, don't, add, don't add, add nothing to our budget. And of course, they actually shrink our schedule because these are failures that we're preventing from observing during our first prototype testing, which means we're able to focus our efforts on other perhaps more uh, more sophisticated ways of our things, our thing failing, I should say. So what is reliability? We are all reliability engineers, but it's worth going over this one more time to make sure we're all on the same page. What we just looked at, for, uh, anticipating the root causes of failure and coming up with corrective actions to address them is what is how we make reliability a thing, how we bake reliability to, into our design. But reliability itself, as we all know, hopefully, is a probability that an item will not fail for a designated period under specified conditions. Now, this definition sucks because it includes the term probability and we hate the term probability as engineers. We like things or scenarios with a set of inputs where you get the same outputs no matter what happens. When we talk about probability, of course, we are talking about randomness and failure is frustratingly random. The second part of this definition is that our thing is not going to fail. The third part is that we need to understand that this changes over time as our things get older, more damage accumulates. And so we need to think about periods over which we're expecting our thing to not fail, or at the very least to uh, have a relatively low probability of failing. And we need to measure our designated period in terms of usage metrics that make sense to our failure mechanisms. And last but not least, least is specified conditions, which is how a user or customer interacts with our, which is sorry, includes how a user or customer interacts with our system. And so reliability 
uh, is something that's going to change over time, which is why we often see reliability expressed with a reliability curve that starts at 100% and goes down over time. And so for example, here we have a pro this probability of failure or which implies a 50% reliability at this point in time. And if, as we, or usage I should say, as we continue using our system, the reliability goes down until we essentially have a 100% chance of failure. So reliability is a measure of how often failure occurs. And failure is a product of causality. That means one thing causes another and that causes another thing, so on and so forth. And so failure is the event where a system inherently ceases to perform a specified or required function. And function is a very key word here. To understand what a failure is, you need to understand what, your, what functions your system is supposed to provide. Now, function is a behavior, process, action, or task. It's quite a broad uh, definition for obvious reasons. In, in essence, a function is what your system is intended to do. Now, there are different types of functions and we can get very caught up in system engineering uh, labeling, which is very important in certain, certain environments. But we want to keep things really simple when we are using our brains to design something. We want to look at this uh, as an aid to brainstorming because essentially that's what design is, brainstorming wonderful ideas of creating a wonderful new thing trying to work out the best way of, of moving forward. And but uh, because of that, we want to categorize functions in a way that will help us human beings work out what our system design should be. So functions often start with some sort of input, not all functions, but sometimes we uh, our, our system needs something to provide a function. And that can be, that is usually energy. So if you need something which is going to provide a uh, torque, for example, perhaps the energy source is, comes from a power supply. So if the power supply is offline, it's the, uh, the uh, motor it is, it is uh, driving, it, it hasn't ceased being functional. It's just that the input required for that function has been taken away. Now, our favorite form of function is a, what, we, what we call a basic function all about performance and there's plenty of, oh, went too fast. There's plenty of examples on the screen right now. Uh, is it supposed to transform? Is it supposed to secure? What is our system trying to do? And this is a very natural uh, type of function that we engineers and technicians and technically minded people latch onto. But then there are these wonderful functions called interface functions. And these are the functions which allow components to interact with other components in our system. So for example, a lot of spacecraft have failed because one component was talking in terms of uh, foot pounds, another component was talking in terms of Newton meters when they're both referencing torque. And because there are different units and one component was expecting units, and uh, sorry, that uh, variable in, 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 in certain unit A and instead of got it in terms of unit B, all of a sudden the control of that spacecraft was lost. And we need to remember that interfaces are a vital part of not only the components within our system, but how our system interacts with the world around it. And as a rule, we expect 50% of failures to occur at interfaces. 
Then the other sort of function are those functions that we as engineers tend to gloss over, the additional functions. The things we say are nice to have. Is it easy to maintain? Does it look good? Is it comfortable? Is it have, does it have a nice user interface? Now, the reality is additional functions are way more important than we give them credit for because if you as a customer are looking on the shelf for two seemingly comparable uh, uh, products, the one which has better additional functionality, which looks better, which is aesthetically pleasing to the eye, which is lighter, for example, or has an easier, easier user interface, that's the one that they're going to purchase. Even if it is just as functional in terms of those basic functions, as a competitor. So these are the different types of functions and, because, and breaking them down into these categories helps our brainstorming juices. And so that helps us work out what a failure is because functions are the uh, most important element of the failure definition. So failure is the event where a system inherently ceases to perform a specified or required function. So because failure is a random process and we just said, uh, sorry, failure in involves a random process and the failure itself is an event which is an outcome of that random process, we have to look at these things in a very particular way. So this apple here represents the outcome of something like a failure event. Our system can't do what it's supposed to do. Yesterday it was working fine, but today it's not. It suffered a failure event. And this is what this apple represents, a bad thing. I love apples, I love in, in particular all sorts of red apples, like the delicious and all sorts of other things. So this is just an analogy and not a uh, broad, uh, broad uh, damn, damning state, uh, sentiment against apples. Just using this as a, as a tool to help represent our failure process. So because this is an apple, it has to grow on a tree. So we call this tree, the tree of failure. And we have different types of failure represented by each one of these different apples. But for these apples to be the same size is a bit, mis a bit misleading because we know that some failures matter a lot more than others. And, these, and, and knowing that helps us prioritize our effort. Remember, reliability engineering is not about over-engineering. It's about efficiently working out what the vital few things or weak points of our system are so we can get rid of them. And that starts with understanding what failures are in terms of how badly they affect our value proposition. Now, a simple way of dealing with these failures is to remove the tree, which is wonderful, but because the root system of the tree still exists, the tree grows back and it has the same fruit uh, the next season. This is what a lot of organizations try to do. The reason being is because it is simple and it doesn't involve you getting dirty. Getting dirty means you go into the ground to find that root cause. Now the root cause can be embarrassing. It can mean that you need to do something fundamentally or culturally different. We need to perhaps have a good long hard look at, look at ourselves in the hall of mirrors and say, you know, this thing we've been doing for years, maybe it's not the best way of doing it. And that root cause, at least philosophically, then we'll go through different steps and cause different uh, events on a chain reaction sort of approach all the way up until our failure event, which is our apple growing on this tree. But again, our little representation isn't quite complete because there are lots of different ways, lots of different factors that drive 
failure. There's no, typically no such thing as a single root cause. So because of that, because the name root cause implies a certain level of singularity, some textbooks, for example, will call these different roots causal, fa causal factors. They need to combine in a way to, uh, to create failure. If you remove one of them, one of these causal factors, you will have some reduction in prevalence, but there may be as a, another, as enough other causal factors that failure will still occur. Which brings us to the concept of root cause. Now, a root cause is the initiating cause of failure, at least according to several textbooky sort of documents out there. And this unfortunately tells us nothing. Remember, I'm here, what we're trying to talk about today is a framework which helps brainstorming, which helps you practically identify the true root causes of whatever's going wrong. So I want to scrub out this definition and I want to say that I want to uh, emphasize that a root cause is the thing that we can change to make sure that failure hardly happens again. And because it's something we can change, as a rule, a root cause is a behavior. So for example, Brian proposed that for our Xylon uh, bullet resistant vest earlier in this lesson, a potential root cause was that moisture was not part of the original functional specification. That is a root cause. Our, uh, our lack of attention to detail for this original functional specification, or perhaps not, under, not us not investigating the use case well enough, those are human behaviors and therefore they are root causes because we can change behaviors. In fact, behaviors are the only things we can change. And so that means that, means that a lot of root causes look like these human beings. Now, for those of you who have done any of my courses or my webinars in the past, I like introducing the three enemies of reliability. First one is the infant manager whose favorite catchphrase is WTF, which stands for the wrong thing fast. He wants it yesterday, he wants it really cheap. And of course, uh, if, if uh, that creates lots of problems later on the line, ideally it's going to be in someone else's budgetary uh, report or in somebody else's department, he or she doesn't care. He wants progress today. Doesn't matter what that means in terms of long-term atrocities. Then the second enemy of reliability is our ponderous professor, the person who, for whatever reason, gets a kick out of doing reliability stuff, theoretical reliability stuff, academic reliability stuff, and not practical stuff that helps you work out what the next step of your design process needs to be to create something that's very robust, that's going to work for a long time. So that's enemy number two. And enemy number three is our process seller who doesn't care how you do it as long as it complies with standard X, Y, Z. And even if it's done, uh, if, even if your FAMIA or root cause analysis or fracas is terrible, as long as it ticks all the boxes, this person is, uh, is happy. These are quintessential root causes of failure because these enemies represent a set of behaviors which are always competing with good reliability performance. So these are what lots of root causes look like. And that's big, that's what makes root cause analysis in many cases very challenging because it asks us as an organization, whatever organization we're part of, to look at what we stuffed up. And that is very challenging because we need to be humble. So a root cause in a way is always your fault. 
That's a very negative connotation. There's a way we can rephrase that to make sure we, we have uh, positivity on our documentation or on our reports. But uh, if we try and apportion blame to somebody else, that won't change a thing. So for example, we're gonna go back to the electric motor and the circuit board of our smart lock. And we're trying to go back to the scenario where we just realize that the door slams are going to wreak havoc on our design as it stands today because we've got simple wires which are connected with nothing but solder joints. And solder joints should not be structural. So what we wanna do when we are faced with this realization, ideally we've identified this problem early. If we haven't, perhaps we've had some failures during initial prototype testing, whatever the case might be, we are going to try and look at our tree of failure where one of these fruits corresponds with some failure we've since either envisaged hypothetically or observed through prototype testing or perhaps observed because our customers have submitted warranty claims and we wanna work out what the root causes of this particular failure might be, remembering that root causes are something you can do something about. Now, if we just simply blame the manufacturer or blame the supplier, this is avoiding responsibility. If you can't do anything about that, then essentially this factor becomes environmental. It's not a root cause. If you can't, if you're just saying it's a manufacturer's fault and just complain bitterly about those manufacturers and then walk out, walk out of that office and then do nothing, what you're implicitly acknowledging collectively is that this is an environmental concern. We can't change the quality of our manufacturers, but we're going to pretend that's not a thing. However, if we look more internally and say, well, perhaps. Uh, we put too much time pressure on our supplier. Perhaps we didn't establish a collaborative working environment. Perhaps we didn't specify correctly. Perhaps these are th things that we could have done better. Then this is where you start to improve reliability, where you eat that slice of humble pie, look at what you perhaps could have uh, didn't do well in the past or can do in the future to mitigate this problem. Then now you're talking about making reliability happen. So a really easy way of finding a true root cause from a very reliability engineering based perspective is to ask the following simple set of questions. Now, when I teach this sort of stuff and I've done this in the past, I've tried to template textbook definitions of reliability concepts into these questions. And it doesn't work at least not easily because there's so much confusion about what should be fairly uh, consistent definitions across the industry. So what I tend to do these days is get rid of textbook definitions and replace that with the intent of what most textbooks are trying to suggest. And beyond that, replace it with an, an intent to get to the true root cause, the purpose of making something better. And when I did that, this is what I came up with. So the first thing we ask ourselves when we're faced with failure, either hypothetically or through direct observation is ask ourselves, what is my system doing slash not doing uh, in, as part of this failure event? The next question we ask is why did this happen? Now the why did this happen bit is essentially the trunk of our tree. What were the steps that, uh, that uh, connect our root cause to the failure event? Why did, we, why did this thing happen in a, in a very physical way? And the reason we need to do that 
is because if we don't ask yourself why did this happen, we will never work down, uh, get uh, get down to our root cause. And the root cause is something we can we need, can do something about. And the, and we break this question down even further into three different sub questions, which is what broke, how did it break, and what started it. And that I'll go through a couple of examples uh, very soon. And when we get to our root, this allows us to ask ourselves, what did, we, what did we do wrong? If we know what started this uh, started this reason for thing, our thing failing, we can should be able to come up with an answer to this question, what did we do wrong, which is very negative, I know. So we can sometimes replace that with, what do we need to do in the future to prevent this failure from occurring? And this is where... Uh, the reason why we're breaking this down into these really simple questions is because we're all about brainstorming and reliability. Brainstorming sounds very general and very, very vague, maybe abstract, but brainstorming is at the heart of many activities such as a failure mode and effect analysis. And this is where an, the facilitator of a FAMIA is going to organize brainstorming to work out what the potential root causes of failure might be. And if she or he uh, follows these steps, we'll all but guarantee we get to the root, true root cause. Or perhaps this is a facilitator for a root cause analysis. And again, if we get hung up on textbooky definitions, so people are wondering what that word means with that 15 syllable acronym over there, 15 syllable acronym. Anyways, what these complex terminologies might refer to, they spend too much time looking at their notes to get on top of definitions as opposed to simply working out what happened. So if we look at our smart lock uh, again, so now a smart lock is a wonderful device which allows us to enter uh, or pass through doors uh, when uh, our smart lock can, uh, oh, sorry, it allows that door to be unlocked when it realizes our smartphone, smartphone is in our pocket in a, within a couple of meters or a couple of yards proximity. So it automatically unlocks. Uh, there are many ways our smart lock can fail. And we're going to revisit our electric motor because our electric motor is at the heart of smart lock operations. If we, if we uh, even if the circuitry can, can determine that we're supposed to unlock the door, if that motor is not working, then our smart lock is practically useless. So for our little motor here, and my computer's trying to keep up, let's just say we're in the middle of a FAMIA or a FAMICA or, or what some other brainstorming session where we're trying to get ahead of the curve. We realize through whatever means that this particular area of our system is a concern. And then we ask ourselves, what could go wrong? And we often start with, getting our functions correctly defined because with our functions come the definition of failure. So in this function, in this case, the function is to convert six volt, 100 milliamp DC to rotational kinetic energy with torque and speed specifications to be determined because we're at the preliminary design stage. We know we need to specify those, uh, uh, the torque and speed, haven't got there yet, but we, uh, we, know, it's this, we know it's going to come. So the first question we might ask ourselves is, what is my system doing or not doing to uh, realize this function? And that's where we brainstorm and come up with all sorts of different explanations. And one, one of the first things we come up with might be that the shaft won't turn. So our facilitator is doing a brainstorming session. 
lots of different ideas. One of them is that the shaft won't turn. So we then we looked at look at that particular fright, the shaft what shaft won't turn. The next question we ask ourselves is why did this happen? Specifically, what broke? And our facilitator does some more brainstorming. And one of the things they come up with is shaft fracture. So let's look at shaft fracture. Next question you ask yourselves is how did it break? Of course, we have all sorts of different uh, possible explanations. One of them could be fatigue, fatigue cracking. Okay. The next question we ask ourselves after we focus on fatigue is what started it? Well, there's lots of different ways that fatigue can start. Surface imperfections, uh, defects, misaligned bearings and gears. Now, by asking ourselves these questions in this very systemic way, we all but guarantee we think of all the possible ways our, our uh, shaft won't turn. And when we do that, we get good coverage for our potential root causes and corrective actions. So go back to these questions we just asked ourselves. What, what is my system not doing? Why did this happen? What broke? How did it break? What started it? What did we do wrong? What do we need to do? All right. So those last two questions, that's where the rubber hits the road. What, can we, what do we need to do to prevent this particular form of failure from occurring? Well, let's just take the answers to all these questions and write them into, in these boxes. So that fruit at the top, which represents one of the ways our thing might fail. Well, the shaft won't turn. And then we start putting our answers into a phrase. Due to shaft fracture from fatigue cracking, caused by service imperfections. Now, when we write it like this, we have, what can't it do anymore? What broke? How did that happen? What started it? It really makes sure that everyone in that room is on the same page and will almost certainly come up with some really useful targeted corrective actions to make sure that those service imperfections are not going to cause failures in the future. And that could be uh, as a proposal to conduct a process from here, which focuses on manufacturing, to ensure that there are no surface cracks that go deeper than 0.05 millimeters. And so this little phrase that we came up with in these orange boxes, what we call a root cause statement. When you do it this way, at least in my experience, when you follow the bouncing ball, you all but guarantee you get to a meaningful root cause statement, which helps your team come up with corrective actions that will actually work and not some broadly dismissive test regime or guidebook this or do something in accordance with standard that. We are now coming up with some useful corrective actions to make sure that this uh, failure of all failures will never occur. So if you get the root cause statement right, you will find the root cause. With that said, there's no absolutes in anything we do because sometimes it's okay to do a shortcut. So let's go back to our, um, our smart lock motor and we're asking ourselves what could go wrong with this little part of our system. So this, we look at our functions. Of course, there's plenty of functions for our smart lock motor um, besides this function here, but let's just focus on this one again. What is my system not doing? Or perhaps in our brainstorming session, our facilitator came up, well, the facilitator convened a conversation with one of the potential uh, types of failure was that our shaft will still turn, but it's now turning too slowly. Okay, so this is something we're going to focus on when we ask our questions uh, as we go down 
towards our root cause. So why did this happen? Well, question number one of that part is what, what broke? Well, we have reduced electrical contact conductivity, which means that we have this right voltage being supplied, the right current being supplied, but for whatever reason, we're losing conductivity. Uh, there's a lot more resistance than there should be in our electrical contacts. And of course, there's plenty more explanations for why our shaft is turning too slowly. So let's focus on this potential explanation. How did it break? Well, perhaps it was through corrosion. We come up with lots of different ideas again, and one of those brainstormed ideas was corrosion, where our contacts are oxidizing. Uh, and the next question we're supposed to ask is what started it? Well, our facilitator might stop right there and not ask ourselves that last final question. And we'll come back to that. Why we come back to why our facilitator might be happy with doing happy in doing that. So here are our questions. What is my system doing slash not doing? Why did this happen? What do we do wrong? What do we need to do? So let's just put our answers into our little orange boxes again. Uh, our shaft turns too slowly due to reduced electrical, electrical contact conductivity from corrosion. And we, for whatever reason, our facilitator admitted the final, asking ourselves a final question, which is what started this? Well, this still allows us to come up with some useful corrective actions. In this case, we might review the use case because humidity extremes are obviously going to play a part in corrosion. We all know, we all know, remember, we all know that humidity and moisture causes corrosion and maybe conduct a design for me on the housing seal itself. So our shorter root cause statement looks like this. Our shaft turns too slowly due to reduced Electrical, electrical, electrical contact conductivity from corrosion. Now, the reason why in this case, our amazing FAMIA or RCA facilitator omitted that final question, which is what started this, is because in this case, this facilitator was able to survey the room and he or she knew that this team was all across corrosion. There was not a lot of benefit to be, to be gained from examining corrosion in greater detail. Perhaps these guys and girls have been dealing with corrosion their entire professional lives. And the reason, and the reason why we want to ask ourselves questions is to ask ourselves questions is to brainstorm, but we typically only brainstorm when our brains aren't full of, uh, full of truth. We're trying to work out what might cause certain things. But if these guys are corrosion experts, all we need to do is say corrosion and they go, oh, well, I know how to fix corrosion and that's fair enough. It's up to the, up to the skill uh, judgment, I should say, of the facilitator to work out where and when it is okay to stop. In fact, it's sometimes okay to go even shorter than those, uh, sorry, ask even fewer questions than the questions we just asked ourselves for our corrosion-based failure. So back to our electric motor, what could go wrong? Our function to convert six volt, 100 milliamp DC to rotational kinetic energy. Question number one, what is my system doing slash not doing? Brainstorm all the potential ways our thing can uh, not live up to expectations. Re-examine shaft, uh, our shaft turning too slowly. And that brainstorming session where we identify lots of different ways or lots of different things that could potentially break, instead, 
of our electrical contacts uh, corroding, we came up with a failed bearing. Uh, so in this case, our facilitator says, okay, say no more. I don't need to ask any more questions. And if we go back to those questions that we're supposed to ask, or at least I'm saying could help, or you uh, as a guide, guide um, th these questions could help you get to the true root cause. In this case, we have only answered the first two. Our shaft is turning too slowly due to failed bearing, and we haven't gone any further than that. And that, again, is okay. And in this, in this case, and we'll, we'll talk about why very shortly. So some of the potential corrective actions are that the use case uh, is reviewed and in, in, to identify the anticipated cycles in uh, bearing specification. So we're trying to work out how many times this, uh, the inner race of our bearing needs to rotate from our use case. Once we do that, we can perhaps do things like incoming alt testing our 5% of all incoming motors to make sure that the motors we're getting from our suppliers are going to last the journey. Or perhaps if this is part of a system for MIA and you don't know electric motors very well, you could say, you know what? We need to conduct a design for MIA on this particular motor or bearing or, or, uh, or whatever component is relevant. So our root cause statement is now a lot shorter. Shaft turns too slowly due to a failed bearing. Now, the reason why our facilitator said that was okay in this case was, he, again, because he or she surveyed the room and she, he or she knew at least there, uh, that uh, everyone in that team, or at least a good, uh, a fair portion of the, of the people in that team, knew bearing failures inside and out. If we know essentially the causal chain once we get to a particular answer of a question, and if we have the experts in the room, we sometimes don't need to ask all those other questions to get to the true root cause. If you've got the bearing guy sitting right there, they should be able to tell you the top 10 ways that bearing is, is going to fail, the top 10 uh, faults, the top 10 failure mechanisms, the top 10 root causes. And all of a sudden we have some wonderful corrective actions because this person knows bearings. So this is a brainstorming tool which you need to employ judiciously. But if you've got nothing, if you're truly stumped about what the true root causes of your system are, then asking yourselves all these questions is the way to go. Because that will all but guarantee if you ask those questions sequentially, especially if you go down as far as asking yourself what started this, you will get a very seamless logical transition from your failure all the way down to the root cause. And so we measure how good this brainstorming session is by uh, essentially asking ourselves what has come out of this session. So I need to fix this right here. Got an issue with my computer. Always have issues with my computers during webinars. So the question we're asking ourselves is how do we measure how good our root cause taxonomy is? Well, if we go back to our FAMIA or RCA facilitator, the outcomes or the outputs of the activity that she oversees is, is measured in terms of the coverage and the quality of our corrective actions. And so even if you only go through half the process or even if you use your own process, you know that you've done this process well of identifying potential root causes through the coverage and the quality of your corrective actions. So your corrective actions need to cover the vital few ways your thing can fail 
and they need to correctly address the true root cause such that if you implement that corrective action, that root cause is not going to happen again. And so it comes all back to this tree of failure and these questions we are asking ourselves. At the top, we have the first and foremost question, what is my system not doing? And at the bottom, we have what do we need to do? That bottom question or the answer to that bottom question is the reason why we do this stuff. Now, for those of you who have who've gone, that's great, but I do need to have some academic formalism with this stuff. We're asking, we're asking ourselves some very low level questions. I might understand these questions that you're asking me. They're very simple language. But where are the failure modes? What are these failure mechanisms? What are all these other terms I hear about in textbooks? How do that, how do they uh, come into play when, when we're talking about this tree of failure? Well, each one of these questions aligns with a particular reliability engineering term. So for example, our first question, what is my system doing or not doing? That is what we call a functional failure mode, the functional consequence of our thing not working. And there's lots of different examples uh, you can see on the screen now. Intermittent speed, fl complete fluid loss, does not transmit torque. So you can see the answer to this question involves no physical explanation of what we're doing or what has happened. It's all about the function we have lost. And the reason why we want to take it this slowly and ask ourselves uh, what might go wrong functionally is to preserve the brainstorming logic. If we go down too fast too quickly, we don't branch out into all possible explanations, which is brutally important when it comes to reliability engineering. So the first step is asking ourselves what might, might go, might, what might go wrong functionally. So what is my system not doing? The answer to that question is a functional failure mode. Now the functional failure mode allows us to assess the severity of that failure mode. That tells us what the effects are going to be and it helps us work out what the vital few failure modes are. That's the first question. It's all about the functional failure mode. The second question is why did this happen? And we start with asking ourselves what broke. And the answer to, that, answer to that question is what we call the physical failure mode, the, phys the physical consequence of a failure mechanism. And there are some examples in the slide right on the screen right now. And so this is where we explain what the physical state of our component is that meant that we don't have that function anymore. So we go down one more level of, it, of investigation and describe what is wrong. Something has fractured, something is loose, something is sticking. The next question we ask ourselves, if you remember, is how did it break? This is the failure mechanism, the physical, chemical, electrical, thermal, or other process which results in failure. So for example, this is a failure mechanism here, a tin whisker, where for whatever reason, for reasons we don't completely understand today, uh, if we have tin plated terminals, we have these little tiny whiskers, which for some reason, go from one terminal to another, creating a short circuit. Another example of a fa failure mechanism is dendritic growth. And so if we have any, any scenario where we have a cathode or an anode, we have these little lightning-like uh, metallic crystals working from one side to the other. And when, that, when it reaches the anode, we have a, a very small short circuit. So this is a failure mechanism. Another failure mechanism is corrosion, where we, where we have something that oxidizes. Another failure mechanism is fatigue, 
where we have cyclic stresses contributing to a crack growing incrementally over time. So these are all failure mechanisms and potential answers to our question of how, a question that asks, uh, where we ask, how did it break? The next question is what started all this? And that is what we call a fault, the immediate cause of failure. And that fault could be stress concentrators where we have sharp angles in our geometry, which raise the stress locally, which means that's where fatigue cracks are going to emanate from. Or we might have defects in our, in our metal, metallic structure, which again, increases localized stresses and will then be a likely initiation point for a fatigue crack. And of course, there's lots of other defects and, uh, and purities and things that are going to uh, create the, the right conditions for the failure mechanism to, uh, to continue. But if we go through the process of asking yourself sequentially, uh, what went wrong? How did it, what broke? What, how did that happen? What started it? We get to this lovely root cause statement, which helps us answer the next question, which is what did we do wrong? And that's the root cause. The root cause is a behavior. You can't change what has already happened. You can't take that impurity out of the metal. The root cause is our, in, uh, our uh, poor quality manufacturing techniques or our neglect to consider impurities when, when uh, specifying, uh, specifying the outputs of our manufacturing process or not doing appropriate inspection or incoming testing. If we didn't do those things, those are potential root causes. We can't change physical phenomenon that have already physical phenomena that have happened in the past. The only thing we can address is our, our behaviors, which leads us to the main reason we are doing all this, which is to identify corrective actions. Now, corrective action is also known as a fix, and it involves a change to a system design operation maintenance procedure or the manufacturing process of the item for the purpose of improving its reliability. So that is why we always, uh, that is why we need to understand what a true root cause is. If there's something we can't address, then it's not a root cause or a potential root cause because it can't be coupled with a corrective action. Even if your manufacturer is doing something untoward, the corrective actions you can influence range from better relationships with your suppliers through to incoming inspection or better specifications or incoming testing. These are things you can change and therefore uh, are, uh, uh, can be coupled with a true root cause. But if you're not able to address it, then it's simply an environmental characteristic you need to deal with. And all this comes down to this thing we call the reliability mindset, which comprises of this whole overarching concept of value, language, and methods. Language is very important because if we don't know what we're talking about, or if I use the term failure mode and it means something to me, and if you think it means something else, we are just wasting our time. We are, when we have these competing ideas of definitions, it, they uh, impose these hurdles to efficient and effective brainstorming. And so language is brutally important because at the heart of reliability is this failure tree. So the first thing we need to do with our reliability tree of failure, I should say, is that through a well-defined concept of value, work out which apples are bigger than others, which failures matter the most. And when we identify these failures that matter the most, we're able to, we're able to work out 
by how much they matter. What is the cost of this failure occurring? Then comes language, which is what we talked about today. I've all but given up on trying to use trying to use failure modes and failure mechanisms and faults in a ubiquitously unanimous way across the industry. There are so many different and competing ideas about what a failure mode and a failure mechanism and a fault might be. So when I do this, I simply keep it uh, in terms of those questions I just uh, I just went through. Then uh, those very simple that very simple terminology. We're not relying on everyone to have a textbook uh, recollection of these definitions. And when we do that, it really accelerates the brainstorming process. We make sure we focus on the things that matter. Everyone knows what we're talking about because we're using simple words and asking ourselves simple questions. At the end of the day, we get much better root causes that address the vital few, uh, sorry, corrective actions, which address the vital few root causes. And when we do that, we add the most value to our organization based on our system performance. You can see here, we haven't eliminated all the apples. We just got rid of the big ones. And already that looks a lot better. In fact, we have more apples. Sorry, we, 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 haven't, take, we haven't removed the majority of the apples. We only took four apples out and we have uh, seven apples left. So we still have more apples left than we took out. But because these are smaller apples, our tree looks a lot less imposing. And that's what happens when we do great brainstorming. We're using terminology and questions that make sense to everybody. We get rid of or not uh, get too focused on the, um, the textbook definitions of reliability concepts and all focus on coming up with relevant corrective actions which address the vital few. And that is the reliability mindset. So, are there any questions, comments? Um, does anyone have their own experiences when it comes to uh, causality and what root causes are and perhaps how root causes have been misused over the journey? Are there any questions? Oh, I can see a preemptive response. Thank you, Bartholomew, for that uh, compliment. I assume you had to leave. Thank you, Duke, much appreciated. Any questions or any any war stories or any additional observations? Thanks again, Volker. Okay, so I'm more than happy to stay around for a little bit to answer questions if uh, they're taking, some, uh, taking a little while to foment. But if I could really reinforce that we as reliability engineers can sometimes get too caught up with textbook definitions, standard definitions. Speaking with our friend Carl Carlson again the other day, Fred, and we, and we shared similar stories where I think Carl was talking about how he had to sit for over 45 minutes listening to a bunch of different people debate what, what a fault means or what the definition of a fault was. And that was 45 minutes for the times by, times by how many people were there that you will never get back in terms of lost productivity, all because uh, people get too fixated on what those terms mean. So it's been my experience that if you can jettison the terms break it down to simple questions using simple words 
and if necessary, convert those answers back into the uh, textbooky definitions after the event, you get more good, you get more corrective actions, you get more benefit from that activity. So any more for any more, I still see a few people are hanging around. At risk of being ponderous, <laughs> risk assessment is useful, i.e. the probability of occurrence. Completely agree with you, Pete. Um, risk assessment is, is, an import, is an important part of working out those vital QR and I don't want to uh, downplay that. In fact, you can't do this without doing risk assessment. Um, that's not what I classify as a ponderous professor, to be clear, Pete. I'm talking about that ponderous professor who loves doing certain uh, five-parameter wide-wall distribution analysis that takes two years to get, get an answer back where we actually need the answer next week in terms of what uh, which vendor we're going to go with. Are we talking about those ponderous professors who rather characterise or measure, measure reliability as opposed to giving us best guesses uh, in the next week or so to help us make better design decisions. And hopefully you know what I'm talking about there, but coming, doing a robust risk assessment does not mean you are a ponderous professor, far from it. That's uh, usually a good, good activity. Any more questions? or comments or observations. All right, Fred, I think we're good for today. Oh, uh, Jacob has asked, my apologies, went too soon. Should we include the question how often this occurs? And the answer is absolutely. So uh, when I used an example uh, of a familiar facilitator. A familiar facilitator is the sort of person who's going to be asking what might happen in the future? What are the potential causes, root causes of that thing that might happen in the future uh, for the purposes of identifying corrective actions today? Now, a familiar, uh, which, is a, which is an entirely different webinar in its own right, will always involve uh, characterization of occurrence. If you're doing a familiar, you try and characterize the failure rate. And it is those, um, uh, those param not, they're not parameters, that those uh, occurrence or frequency scores will inform things like what we call a risk prioritization number or, or RPM. And the RPM then goes on to define how big or small our apple is. And so yes, absolutely, coming back to Pete's point again, a risk assessment, which includes severity and occurrence and perhaps other things is a vital tool for us working out how big or small our apples are. And yes, I'll completely agree with you, Jacob. We should always include how often this thing occurs in working out the size of those apples. Uh, thank you, Brian, for that feedback as well.
All right, I went a bit too early last time, Fred. We'll just maybe wait a couple more seconds to see if any more messages or questions are coming through before we call it quits for today. I think we're good. So again, if there's any further questions, you've got my contact details because you're able to find this webinar through Ascendo. But if you do want to reach out and even just have a general conversation about this sort of stuff, please feel free. Um, looking, always, always enjoy engaging with, uh, with the visitors of, our, of Fred's Ascendo website. It's always a good conversation. But again, thank you for your time today. And I look forward to speaking with you guys or whoever wants to attend uh, for my webinar for next month. Thank <laughs> you.